Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, The Conversion of a Pagan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 18, verses 1 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The word pagan. Well, it can be used in a number of ways, and sometimes it's used as an insult. It says, you're a pagan. Uh, but the proper definition of pagan is someone who worships the many gods or goddesses of the natural world. So a pagan will have a deity for the sun, the stars, the moon, the rivers, the trees, and the many other forces of nature. A pagan is what Paul speaks about in Romans 1.23. He says that men and women in their spiritual darkness exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He means instead of worshiping the one who created all things, people worship the things that he has made. Now, I might then by extension argue that there are many pagans in our world today. You know, if we begin by making an assumption that everyone needs to worship and that we all worship either the one true living God or we worship something else. We might not be formally religious, but we do worship. We honor or we praise someone or something greater than ourselves. When the greater thing is the world in which we live, rather than the one who made the world, we're in fact pagan. Well, Exodus 18 contains a very unique Bible account. It's the story of a pagan priest named Jethro. We met him back in Exodus chapter 2, and in that chapter, we're simply introduced to him as the priest in Midian, a man who has seven daughters. Moses then marries one of those daughters, and her name was Zipporah. So let's get some background. Moses, when he fled first from Egypt, lived in Midian for 40 years. The Midianites were descendant from Abraham through his wife Keturah. They were a nomadic people who lived in portions of the Sinai Peninsula, but their main location was in northwestern Arabia. Now, going to Midian was an excellent choice for Moses. A wanted man from Egypt living in Midia would have been no concern for the Midianites. See, the Midianites were a fiercely independent people. They wouldn't have been interested in an extradition treaty with Egypt. They were just the sort of people that you might seek refuge in. Now about Jethro himself. Since he's a priest, what kind of a priest is he? Is he a true pagan priest? Well, I don't think we can say with certainty. I have to imagine that he's inherited some of the stories of Abraham very difficult to reconstruct what he actually believed and taught. It is possible that he might have been a bit like Melchizedek. If you don't remember him, he was the king of Salem or of Jerusalem, and the Bible calls him a priest of God Most High. And furthermore, the New Testament in the book of Hebrews calls Jesus a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that would mean that Melchizedek, although he didn't have the genealogy of the Old Testament priesthood, nevertheless, He had been called upon by God to be a priest of the one true God. So was Jethro such a man? Because the Bible never tells us, we might therefore, I think, come to a number of conclusions. I think Melchizedek was unique. He worships the true God. From the Bible's own description of those who have been called by God, we know that some knowledge was required. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, at the very least, Melchizedek never made the mistake of the pagans. That is, he never confused the creation with the creator. I also think 
that God must have revealed himself to Melchizedek. Again, are we to think of Jethro in that category? Well, I don't think so. I mean, for one, in the case of Melchizedek, uh, we are told he's a priest of the Creator. Nowhere does the Bible identify Jethro in that fashion. However, what we do have in Jethro is an appreciation for Moses. And when Moses went to tell him what he was going to do in Egypt as God's prophet, to free the enslaved people of God, Jethro seems to understand, and he does give Moses his blessing. And then that's all we hear of Jethro until we come to chapter 18 of Exodus. So let's begin with Exodus 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So let's start there. Of course, by now, it was not that only Jethro had heard. We've already noted that the Exodus event was heard about among all the nations of the ancient Near East. So how is it possible that the most powerful nation in that region, indeed the nation that controlled the entire region, Egypt, had been humiliated by the God of a nation of slaves. The death of the firstborn must have been a shockwave swept through the nations. We know that 40 years later, that same shockwave was still reverberating. Now, let me take you to the book of Joshua. 40 years later, Joshua has sent spies into the land. The spies have been discovered, and there's a move to arrest them. But the spies seek refuge in the home of Rahab, the woman who no doubt ran a hotel, but she was also a prostitute. And here's what Rahab says to the spies, Joshua 2, 8 to 11. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, there's no doubt in Rahab's mind that the God of the Hebrews is the Creator God. There's also no doubt that this God fought on the side of the Hebrews. Any people that set to fight this God would be defeated, even as the Egyptians were defeated. See, in her mind, all that was left to do was to submit to this God, be reconciled to him if that were even possible. So think of Jethro in that vein. Think of what he would have known. He would have known that Egypt had been devastated by Yahweh and all her firstborn were dead. He would have known that the powerful strike force of Egypt, their charioteers, no doubt feared throughout the entire Middle East, now lay drowned in the Red Sea. And I would think, that he would also have known about the Amalekites, those raiders, robbers, and a feared fighting force. They were defeated by Israel at Rephidim. That had just happened. So how can Israel, with no military experience and no doubt, a nation with a scarcity of weapons and little time to train anyone in the art of warfare, have overpowered so legendary a group of opportunistic fighters as that which were Amalek? And I have to wonder if the Midianites had encountered their own trouble with the Amalekite raiders before. Now, this is the knowledge that Jethro possessed, and it was up to him now to know what to do with that knowledge. He could simply have acknowledged it, respected it, and simply carried on. But of course, he has history with Moses. I don't think he's any choice but to think about it personally. After all, he first met Moses and simply took him for an Egyptian official, a man who had defended his daughters. 
But now he sees Moses as the head of a great nation. Somehow he's got to come to terms with Moses. So we continue to read Exodus 18, 2-4. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's an interesting feature of this account that whenever the name Jethro is used in this account, the words Moses' father-in-law follows. We saw that in verse 1. We see it again in verse 2. Then we see it again in verse 5. Indeed, the words father-in-law, well, they're used 13 times in this chapter. It's almost as if, you know, we want to interject and say, yeah, Moses, we get it. He's your father-in-law. There's no need to keep repeating his relation to you. We know who he is. But Moses, who has written this account, insists on replaying his relationship to himself. He does it so often that we're left wondering. It is as if a man introduces his father-in-law to us, and then for the remainder of the conversation, he just keeps on saying, oh, by the way, did you know this man's my father-in-law? Finally, we roll our eyes and say, yeah, yeah, we get it. But he won't stop. He keeps saying it. Well, why? Well, the answer is that even though Jethro is a pagan priest, God has put this man into relationship with Moses. And so there's no way that Jethro will be able to think about what the great God of Israel has done in a distant manner. Jethro is forced now to consider what God has done in a most personal manner. The home of this pagan priest is never going to be the same. His family is never going to be able to deny that the great creator's mighty deeds has touched them personally. Well, that's no different than a contemporary situation. I mean, you think about the family that has never had anyone who's a Christian and suddenly someone converts to Christ. Suddenly, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, it can never be viewed from a distant perspective again. It becomes personal. That's what happened to Jethro. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please, consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month. Some of the ancient rabbis of old, they thought that Moses must have divorced Zipporah. And the reason for thinking that are many. I mean, first they noticed that at some time, and we don't know when, but Moses had sent Zipporah home. And furthermore, they reasoned, well, things must have been tense between them. Indeed, the last time we read about her was in Exodus chapter 4, where she had told Moses that he had become a bridegroom of blood to her. 
So during that time, we found out that Moses hadn't obeyed God in circumcising his son and that his neglect might have resulted in Yahweh putting Moses to death. It was Zipporah herself who had circumcised the boy, and she was very angry with Moses. And now in chapter 18, we read that Moses had at some point in time sent her back to her father's house. And so, read from that perspective, we might think that Jethro was taking the initiative to try to repair the broken marriage. And furthermore, there are those who argue that when Moses later takes a Cushite woman as a wife, it indicates that the divorce must have been complete. Now, I, for my part, think that perspective is saying way too much. It may well have been that knowing the conflict that lay ahead, you know, as Moses and Pharaoh were about to go head to head, and the danger that would have been involved, that Moses would have thought of Zipporah's safety, as well as the safety of his son. And given that, you know, it's mentioned now that there are two sons, we have to believe that the one was at that time, but nothing more than an infant. And furthermore, the fact that Moses took a Cushite woman later to be his wife, that shouldn't strike as as unusual for that time period. It wasn't until much later that the practice of multiple wives would have been condemned as wrong. You know, at this time period, in Moses' time, God had not yet given a law against the practice of taking a second wife. That would have been no different than what Jacob would have done or what David would later have done. I think it's best to read this text as that at some time, Moses sent his wife home to the safety of her father. and There she was awaiting a reunion along with her father and all the Midianite clan. No doubt there were runners that would have come on a regular basis from Egypt to tell the family what was going on. Now, before we continue to read, let's also note the names of Moses' two sons. First one is Gershom. He reminds Moses of his years living as a foreigner in Midian. The second is named Eliezer, which speaks of God's rescue from oppression of Egypt. So from the perspective of Jethro the priest, those two boys in his home tells him that something unusual has happened to their family. They're not a normal Midianite family. Moses was among them. How could they ever be normal? Chapter 18, verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, that verse seems to indicate that at this moment, that is, at the moment they arrived, Israel's already in front of Mount Sinai. But later in Exodus 19, verse 2, that passage says that only then did Israel set out from Rephidim and eventually come to the mountain of God. So I make mention of that here because, as I've pointed out in an earlier study, Rephidim was in the region of Horeb, which was in the region of the mountain of God. And it might have been that at Rephidim, perhaps as they looked off into the distance, they could see the mountain of God. It might have been on the distant horizon. And I say that because, as I've said before, we don't actually know where Rephidim is. And for that matter, we can't say with certainty even where Mount Sinai was either. At any rate, when the journey to Mount Sinai was within a reasonable distance, this is when Jethro arrives. It seems logical here that wherever Moses and the people of Israel were, it was still some distance from Midian. And Jethro is bringing Moses' family to him. He doesn't just send the family, he comes along. He wants to let Moses tell the story. He also wants to hear the story from others. He wants to experience what has been done to this people. Verses 6 to 9. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. 
And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. You know, the first thing we notice is that when the two men, Moses and Jethro, are united, There's no animosity between them. Again, I lay to rest the claim that somehow Moses and Zipporah are divorced. There's no reason for believing that and every reason for believing that when they're reunited, they have a joyful reunion. And furthermore, it's clear that this is how Moses and Jethro greet each other. Moses bows to him in the way that a younger man would greet an older man. It's a sign of respect. And then they inquire about each other. What's your welfare? And that covers everything from health and anything else that's affected them. They're catching up on each other's lives. They're showing they're interested in each other. And then it's Moses' time to speak. And notice that he not only tells Jethro how the Lord rescued them, he also tells about all the hardships. I mean, maybe Moses is telling his father-in-law that when he first addressed Pharaoh, that Pharaoh had told Israel that they had to make bricks and find their own straw. And as a result, The leaders of Israel had turned on Moses. I mean, perhaps Moses told Jethro that when the chariots of the Egyptians came upon them at the Red Sea, that the leaders of Israel turned on Moses and said, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've sent us out here to die by the hands of the Egyptians? Well, the point I'm trying to make is this. Moses not only tells his father-in-law the wonderful miracles of God, but he told him everything, even the hard times, the moments of rebellion. And I mention this so that we don't think that the only way to get anyone interested in what the Lord our God has done is by telling the great things and hiding the difficult things. Such a telling of our faith, that's not attractive. Instead, it's inauthentic. And such inauthenticity is often misleading. And so Moses tells Jethro the whole story. He doesn't hide a thing. Now to verses 10 and 11. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So notice the first response, blessed be Yahweh. Another way of saying that is praise be to Yahweh. See, Jethro is saying that he believes that the God of Israel is to be honored, is to be adored, is to be worshiped. And that's all he would have said. Well, we might not find that overwhelming. I mean, after all, he's a pagan priest and he'd worship many deities. You know, for him to simply add one more might not be that important. But notice what he says next. He says he has no doubt that the reason why this nation of ex-slaves have come out of Egypt is not due to any of the other gods that Jethro might have worshipped. He gives Yahweh all the credit. He alone has done this. Jethro doesn't make the mistake that Israel made later in the incident of the golden calf. You might remember later they would say, this Egyptian calf idol God, well, he's the one who rescued us out of Egypt. That was sheer nonsense. But that's the nonsense of people who just won't believe. And Jethro's different. He's under no illusions. He knows Yahweh has done this. And he also knows that no one has ever heard of a God who's able to do what Yahweh has done. Next, he makes a confession. Yahweh, he says, is greater. He's mightier. He's more glorious than any other God. Is he still a polytheist? Well, maybe. But if he is, he's one who knows that Israel's God is in a category by himself. No other God can be compared to him. 
Now we come to verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And that's to say, Jethro falls in with the community of God's people. He worships Yahweh according to the pattern that Yahweh demanded. He brings an offering. He also eats a covenant meal with other worshipers, and he counts himself as one of them. The bird offering that he offers would have been thought of as some kind of an atoning sacrifice for sins. And here we are, a pagan priest worshiping the one true God. It's an Old Testament conversion story, I think. Jethro takes his place, along with the other pagans that are mentioned in the Old Testament, like Rahab, whom we've mentioned before, and many others. And he joins them and says, he alone is Lord. See, if if you're like Jethro, you might want to do what he did. God is calling you to abandon all of the idols that you have attached to yourself, get rid of them all, and say with this pagan priest, Now I know that the one who rose his son from the dead is God over all, and there is none like him. Confess your sins, fall and worship him, and covenant yourself to being a part of his people. Thanks, John. You know, are there a couple of specific markers that you can think of, life experiences that you think moved Jethro toward God that non-believers might also experience today? Well, I think most remarkably, um, you know, Jethro had a son-in-law who had an encounter with the living God. Yeah, he'd been running away from God. Uh, He had been an Egyptian, and I have no doubt that he would have at least toyed with Egyptian spirituality and uh, and felt the conflict in his own soul. At some point in time, he came before the God of Sinai at the burning bush, and everything changed, and he was in a mission for God. You see, I think uh, any pagan who has a friend who loves Christ above all other things and seeks to serve him passionately but doesn't stop loving that pagan at the same time, that's going to be highly influential and can lead to conversion. So I think that's the first step is, you know, God has put someone in that pagan's life who loves Christ and who yet loves that pagan as well. So that's huge. Now, the other thing that's huge is also that, you know, God has done all these things for Moses and that makes a huge impact on him as well. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The InDoubt Show also recently featured a conversation with the co-creator of The Chosen, Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The InDoubt Show, online at indoubt.ca or at the InDoubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe 
so never to miss a new episode.